Hello, my name's Sam Breakgear and welcome to Brains Bike Back. If you didn't know by now, this is the podcast looking at how our brains, psychology and society are impacted by the ever-evolving technology that surrounds us. According to a survey, the average waiting time for a doctor's appointment in 15 large US metropolitan areas is 24.1 days. And these long waits aren't unique to the US. Even in France, which has been ranked as the best healthcare system in the world by the World Health Organization, has waiting times that go on for days. Last year, a report from the Statistics Department at France's Health Ministry revealed that waiting times to see a doctor in France can vary between 6 to 80 days. Thanks to technology, we can now work remotely, hosting meetings with co-workers, clients, and even potential employees and employers. Technology has allowed us to detach ourselves from working in a specific location at a specific time. And why shouldn't healthcare be the same? We live in a world where we can order transportation, food, and even medicine immediately. But why do we still have to wait so long for something as important as our health and well-being? However, it looks like the days of waiting days to be seen by a specialist could be over thanks to virtual healthcare. To understand more about virtual healthcare and how long we need to wait before we wait no more, I spoke with Dr. Risa Rabbits, the founder of ModernMigraineMD.com, an online service dedicated to patients with chronic migraines, along with Stephanie Corporal, a mental health therapist who operates out of her practice in St. Louis while providing therapy to clients online through the company Better Health. And for our Weird Wide Web story, we have an update on our story from the last episode, which involved Kyle, the $3 million world champion winner of Fortnite and how his gaming session was interrupted by a SWAT team turning up at his front door. This really happened, so stay tuned for that. Disclosure, this episode includes a client of an Espacio portfolio company. Let's get started. And I want to say thank you so much for taking time out of your days to, to speak with me. I'm sure you have a long list of patients that really need your help and really can do with your services. And you've taken the time to, to speak with me. So I really appreciate that. Appreciate the opportunity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. I very much appreciate the opportunity. Super. Great to have you here. Um, so to start with, would you both be able to give a description of who you are, what you do, and your background in virtual healthcare, please? Uh, Risa, maybe if you'd like to start off, then Stephanie? Sure. So my name is Risa Ravitz. I'm a medical doctor. Um, my specialty training is in neurology, and I further, I furthered that education with a Teddy Fellowship. So I see patients uh, in a traditional office setting, a brick-and-mortar setting in New York City as a neurologist. Um, I treat a lot of headaches in the office setting and found that uh, virtual medicine was actually a very good fit for the patients that I see. So in addition to the office setting and the hospital setting that I work in, I um, expanded my business and opened up a separate company where I'm seeing patients virtually. Uh, Stephanie, would you be able to do the same, please? Sure. I am a licensed professional counselor in St. Louis, Missouri, and I started a private practice about a year ago. I was in nonprofit work for about six and a half years before that. And so as I was building my private practice, I also signed on to be a therapist through BetterHelp, which is a pretty commonly known uh, virtual health platform that a lot of people access for therapy. Um, And so in doing that, I 
I chose to do that while I was getting my practice started so I could supplement some income, but also just understanding the trend of therapy is going to continue to be that more people want to access virtually. So I wanted to start to build that skill set, introduce myself to what how that looks different for therapy as the professional providing the therapeutic intervention. Um, and then also be able to eventually incorporate that in my own private practice. Um, and I have had a couple of my private practice clients um, do a video session at a time when they're unable to make it to the office. So it's been a great bridge to be able to get familiar with that, have somebody else worry about the technology while I'm building that different nuanced skill set before I take over and do it in my own private practice fully. Mm-hmm. Um, I suppose as well, before we get started uh, on, on the topic, we should probably clarify for our listeners exactly what virtual healthcare is. Because when I was researching this, it seems like there's quite a few terminologies for either the same thing or something similar. Like, for example, I came along at telehealthcare and virtual healthcare was something else. Risa, would you be able to explain the difference between like what is virtual healthcare or what are, and the other terminologies surrounding this that exist? So in my experience, um, since since starting this company and doing this for the last probably year and a half, and also with some experience doing this uh, in my last uh, practice over six years, the, the terms are pretty interchangeable, and Stephanie can comment on this as well, but um, when you go and look online or people ask about it, the terms are pretty interchangeable. Use A lot of the terms that are used are virtual, uh, telemedicine, video chat sessions. There were some times when we were saying um, virtual visits with robots. We used to actually treat patients uh, for stroke, for acute stroke online, and they actually have this robot or a nurse that provides us with a camera that we can see the patient and they go through this algorithm where we make decisions about what medications to give to these patients. So the terms I think have been really interchangeable, um, but I think it means that you are not in the same place with the patient you're treating and you're using a screen or a platform uh, to provide care. I'm, I gotta say, from the sounds of it, like, um, it, it sounds incredible. It sounds like something you'd expect to see in a sci-fi film. Um, and I'm really excited to be talking about this because it seems that like in our work lives, we can so easily move around and the term digital nomad has become so, so commonplace that we can work from anywhere, we can go anywhere, we don't, we're not married to a certain site or a particular time. We're so liberated and free and yet, it seems like healthcare is lacking behind so much in this aspect. And it baffles me that in one common aspect of our lives, we could be so free and so liberated. And yet in the other aspect, it seems that like healthcare is still kind of very slow to adopt this mentality. How do you feel the current state of uh, virtual healthcare is at the moment? Would you say like um, it's a very popular phenomenon or are people still kind of like slowly getting to terms with this as like a, an option? Uh, what would you say about this, Stephanie? That's a tough one when it comes to mental health, particularly. There's still such a stigma around getting treatment, working with a therapist. Um, so as far as people being slow to a virtual platform, it can be hard to tease out if it's because they're still slow to mental health versus virtual healthcare still hasn't caught up. 
Um, what is great about virtual healthcare for mental health therapy is that it does kind of reduce that stigma. You're not pulling into an office and you're unsure who's going to see you. You can do it from the comfort of your own home or while you're at your office, just shut the door. Um, but it's so hard when it comes to mental health to really tease out if it's slow because the professionals haven't caught up or if it's because the population hasn't been ready to engage yet. Mm -hmm. And do you think the same uh, stigma exists or difficulty exists in your practice, Risa? So I don't think the same, the exact same stigma exists. And I do see that stigma in patients that I refer on to mental health. And I think it's an amazing opportunity to actually give to patients um, to be able to do it from the comfort of home and have discretion. And in addition, I've seen a lot of patients actually start like texting with a therapist they mm -hmm. haven't actually met mm. yet, which is fascinating, and then go on to um, feel more comfortable and have a virtual visit. So to answer your question, Sam, I don't have as much of that issue because when my patients are in pain and, and scared, they want to see a doctor and they don't, they, that, that sort of, you know, they, they, want to, they want that service right away. But what mm -hmm. I have seen is that people are just, it just hasn't gained the traction that we expected. Um, when you actually look at the number of doctor visits in a year, the last time I looked at the data, uh, telemedicine visits were still, I think the last statistic, and we can look this up, was 0.1 to 1% of visits. Wow. Mm -hmm. and yeah. And you really, and there's probably a lot of, a lot of reasons for this, and I can go into that if you'd like, but think people, I think there's a lot of reasons. I think that people are not aware of it, first of all. You know, I, yeah. I, I even told my cousin recently, I'm, you know, I'm doing this telemedicine thing. And she said, oh, is that on the telephone? And I said, the telephone? <laughs> we, we have iPhones now and, you know, Androids. We don't have telephones. I'm shocked. You know, we're, we're young. And so I think people, number one, are not aware. Number two, the insurance companies, from my standpoint, and, and Stephanie can comment on this as well, are very slow to adopt this as a practice that that be reimbursable. So from a doctor's perspective, we have to make a decision. Are we going to offer this as a, as a concierge service, service, which is what I'm doing currently, um, or are we gonna fight with the insurance companies and try and get this mm -hmm. um, be a standard visit, which, you know, unfortunately the insurance companies run a very archaic kind of um, platform where, where they just, the, just the traditional office visit with a physical, physical exam and vital signs all have to be present to actually get money back and, and be paid for a visit. So that's a big obstacle as well. I also think that the, that the medical field is, is very, um, it, it's slow to change in general. It's paternalistic and slow to change. And People worry that they're not going to be examined or they're not going to get the same type of care. But truthfully, a lot of what I do and, and very much what Stephanie does, I'm sure she can answer to this as well, is really rooted in a long, detailed history and conversation. Um, and that really can be done anywhere. And and from a neurologic perspective, as a neurologist and a doctor, I can glean a lot just from seeing a patient, just from seeing how they speak and how they move, just over the screen. 
obviously if there's something I'm worried about, I'm going to send them on to an emergency room or get them to go to see somebody in an office. But people are worried about that. Um, and they're just not used to the actual availability of that. Mm -hmm. Stephanie, do you find that, um, similar to what Risa was saying, do you find that the insurance companies are slow to react to this change and maybe haven't um, uh, adopted it as quickly as you might hope or we might hope? Sure. Um, insurance definitely plays a, such a significant factor in so many health decisions. Um, what I have actually seen for insurance reimbursement for telehealth is there are several that provide it and oftentimes that comes into play because there are so many rural areas without access to either enough mental health professionals or any mental health professionals. And so the insurance companies, some of them have understood that people covered by that insurance provider don't even have access to that in person. And so they almost have to figure out a way to reimburse which means paneling people for telehealth. So I have several colleagues that provide insurance paneled, insurance reimbursed telehealth services in Missouri to people in very rural areas. Mm -hmm. So I suppose it's literally kind of a lifesaver, I suppose, without yes. this, this virtual healthcare system, they would have absolutely no access to any form of uh, mental health services. Yes, and that is one of the great gifts of virtual healthcare is not just um, the accessibility and the convenience, but being able to reach people who otherwise would not even be able to touch the service when they're in dire straits, really a lot of emotional pain, mental pain, and just need that lifeline in some instances. Do you find that internet connectivity is ever an issue? Because when I think of rural areas, I don't really think of high-speed internet or easy kind of Skype calls. Sure. I have not run into that issue personally at all. Um, I think the internet capacity has really probably changed for the positive over the last 10 years. And so that connectivity is not as much of an issue. I'm sure there are definitely instances it is or in those rural areas if the weather's bad and you're trying to have a mental health session, there is the potential, but with additional ways to work around that, I think it is becoming less of an issue and you can always reschedule for a better day and you're not having to wait a week, two weeks to get back in. I just wanted to make a comment on that because I agree as well. I think I think the internet has, has made that con connectivity really a lot better, smoother and possible in it. And as I said before, I treat a lot of migraine headaches, but I also treat a lot of other conditions where people just do not have access to uh, a headache specialist or let alone a neurologist and, and really would have to travel hours and hours to get in to see a specialist. So it's amazing that they can actually get seen and treated in a way that's, um, in my opinion, safe and um, very accessible. Clearly, this change is, is helping a lot of people that previously probably would have struggled. Um, but it's still, like, like we've said, it's still not as prevalent as it, we'd really hope for it to be, or really that it should be given, given the benefits of it. 
Um, so in both of your opinions, how far away would you say that we are from seeing, uh, being seen by doctors or therapists virtually and that becoming the norm, in fact, more so than in person? Um, Risa, would you like to start and then Stephanie? Sure. Um, I think that we are still far away for the reasons that I said, because it just still, these other systems are sort of dragging and lagging behind, I think. One other thing that I didn't mention before, and I don't know if this is the case um, in mental health, but I know um, for doctors, I need to have a license in the state that the patient is residing to see the patient. So I basically have to get a license in every state that I want to see patients in virtually, which is a, another big boundary to actually open up that care. So the laws have to change as well. You know, this is a state by state kind of a little bit of the wild west actually, but, but we're, we're bound by a lot of these laws. We're bound by HIPAA compliance. We have to have everything be secure. So I think practitioners and doctors and, and therapists, they have to put themselves out there. And I, I think it's great that, that people are trying to do that, but, but you do have to put yourself a little bit out of the boundaries of what you've learned and what's been uh, stipulated as, as, um, the usual route of care. So my hope would be that people would use these services for things like mental health, things like chronic headaches, things where uh, patients can't get to the specialists and see them, urgent care type complaints where people actually don't need to get seen in person but need help urgently. Uh, dermatology is another field where they're starting to do this where people can show a doctor rash on, on the camera and they can get what they need. But it still hasn't taken hold as as much as I think we thought it would. Mm -hmm. and Stephanie, mm -hmm. do you find the same issues as well when it comes to uh, operating outside of the state for mental health specialists? Is it the same? Mm -hmm. It is the same. You have to be licensed in the state that the patient resides. Um, and there are various requirements to be licensed even in a different state. It's not um, necessarily a very smooth or easy reciprocity process if you wanted to get licensed in another state. Um, and I agree with Risa, it, we are far from the tipping point of more visits being conducted virtually than in person. Um, I do think there will be an aspect of that that changes as teens grow into adults you know, the people that have grown up with a phone in their hand, with texting as the primary mode of conversing, using FaceTime, things like that. I do think we will see a shift as they grow and become young adults, adults in midlife crisis. Um, they will, I think, start to default to a sense in virtual healthcare because that is how they're comfortable. But then there's also a question I have in mental health therapy, which is, I think sometimes people, virtual healthcare can bridge the gap to starting services, and Risa kind of alluded to this earlier, but I think sometimes people really do crave that face-to-face -face interaction. And so I would hope that 
maybe starting with a therapist virtually gives them that comfort level that if they are seeking that face-to-face, bodies in the same room, under the same roof, they're at least comfortable enough to then make that transition to an in-person therapist. Mm -hmm. Like dipping their toe into the water Mm -hmm. to just slowly get adjusted to it. Um, So so from the sounds of it, I mean, like, this is why I love doing this podcast, because often I have preconceptions about certain topics and think, oh, this is the situation, or this is the state from what it seems to me. But I entered this thinking, oh, the issues holding back virtual healthcare are probably technological, and maybe some of them are. But from speaking with both of you, it sounds like the issues holding you back are less technological and more legal. Would you say that that's correct, Stephanie? Yes, I would agree with the legality standpoint. There is so much to make sure you have in order as a therapist to be able to do this with HIPAA compliance, lawful compliance. And again, I don't want to sound like a broken record, but in mental health care, there is just that hurdle to overcome of really having that conversation with people that it is okay to want to talk to a therapist. And even with virtual health care and the barriers it reduces, there still is that internal and societal stigma of, oh goodness, I have to talk to a therapist. I'm not so sure I'm ready to embrace that idea and everything I think it means. So it seems like you guys are both doing a lot of good work and I'm sure you've helped a lot of people through your virtual healthcare practices. Um, would you both be able to share with us a story, a success story? Risa, if you want to start off, maybe a story about um, how someone has reduced the number of migraines or severity of migraines, and Stephanie will hear from you. Sure. Sure. So uh, my success stories uh, I'm actually very proud of, and I think that, again, it, it, it's exactly what what we think. It's, it's in people that don't have access to the right expert um, in a timely fashion and in a way that they can really get the services that they need. So I think my success, one of my success stories is uh, from a patient out in rural California who had multiple headaches and continued to go to emergency rooms and urgent care centers and primary care doctors all of which, you know, those doctors tried to do their best and, and, and serve the patient, but they also are under a lot of um, time constraints and know that know their field better than, uh, obviously, neurology and headache. So um, this patient uh, found me and was willing to, I, I actually practice more of a concierge model, but I, tr- I try to make it very affordable. And in about two months, I was able to change med- some medications around so I can actually prescribe medications, um, not nothing narcotic or controlled, but I don't usually need to do that for headache medicine. Um, and I was able to adjust those medicines and the, the headaches were reduced by almost 75%, which is amazing. And um, the other thing is that a lot of what I do and probably and obviously what Stephanie does as well is I really, patients are relieved to get a diagnosis and understand what they have. They need to understand that. And can you imagine going to an ER over and over and over again, and nobody tells you what you have. So part of this concierge model is that I can actually give them some more time than the five minutes they might get 
in an emergency room with a doctor and explain these things and then be available. Again, usually it's not so many appointments that are even needed, but to actually just explain these things and take the time to go over lifestyle changes and tweak little things that overall make a huge difference. So this person in particular would have to take a long drive into Los Angeles. Um, you know, that the waiting time to see a headache specialist there was six weeks or seven weeks. And I think they were very happy with that care. They also try to provide you know, emailing and, and other types of this quote unquote, it shouldn't seem like it's concierge, but it is. And, and people I think are very responsive to that. So they don't have to go back to the ER and they can get those questions answered. That in itself is incredible. The fact that you're on the other side of the country and you're able to reduce them by 75%. I mean, I myself, um, I don't suffer from migraines too frequently, maybe once a year, but I can imagine if they were more constant or more frequent. I mean, personally for me, I think a migraine is up there with one of the most painful experiences I've ever had. Yes. <laughs> maybe I've just been very lucky in my life or maybe I have a very low tolerance for pain, but there's certainly not something that I would wish on to anyone really. Uh, so I, I can really empathize with your, your, your patients that you're working with. And um, yeah, it sounds like you really helped them. Yeah, yeah. And again, you're right. They, they end up, like I said, they're going to emergency rooms, which is not the best experience just to have to go to an emergency room. Um, but it is, it is something that, can, that is very treatable with, with the right medications, the right um, education, and the right diagnosis. And Stephanie, would you be able to share with us a story, a success story from your practice? Sure. Um, there was a mom I worked with who, I wouldn't say she was from a rural area necessarily, but definitely a smaller town. And she signed up on the BetterHelp platform. And at first, you know, therapy was something that she was taking some time to warm up to, but after messaging back and forth a little bit, there was the, at least that basic comfort level provided. I think she was able to kind of litmus test that I knew what I was talking about, could be a resource for her. And once we were able to start live sessions, um, she was suffering from postpartum depression pretty severely. And, you know, during that time in life, when you are struck with that, you don't really know which way is up. You don't know what's normal, what's uncommon. And there's just so many questions, so much chaos, and just really heavy feelings of darkness. And so being able to have somebody walk through that with her and explain kind of what Risa said, somebody that's able to explain what's going on, give a diagnosis, say what, here are the symptoms of what you have. And this isn't normal, but they will go away, can revolutionize somebody's world. And for her to know that they will resolve by following through in this way and taking care of herself in this way, and for us to explore patterns from the past and talk about healthy behaviors. I mean, she is now so attached, healthily bonded with her child, and really just able to take so many things in stride in a way that a couple months ago, you know, she wasn't sure if she was going to have to leave her job or she did, like I said, she didn't know which way was up. And I don't know if in her small town, she would have necessarily either felt comfortable going to an in-person therapist or if she could have gotten into quickly or even found someone at all. Mm -hmm. I am. Um... 
I will say I, um, my background's in psychology. I'm not as well versed as you are, Stephanie, or, or as well qualified. But um, from studying it, I know that, and I definitely have to say that therapy is very important, if not equally important, as physical health. And I have great admiration for anyone that wants the best of themselves, even if, no matter where they come from, even if they think they're on top of the world and great, but mm -hmm. they want to talk to someone and just have that clarity of just being able to speak to someone or if they're really at the rock bottom and they mm -hmm. really really need that help so just being able to be someone that you for them to be able to reach out to you no matter where they are and to better their lives I hope that that does help to reduce the stigma and also give them the help they need so it, it seems like it's working and let's hope this continues yes um sorry go ahead but you going to say something no, I just agree with everything you said and the hope that it continues is absolutely one I have as well. Awesome. Uh, so my last question to both of you, what would you like to see? What would you like to see improve or change to, to help uh, virtual healthcare become more prevalent in society? What steps can we take to do this? Risa, would you like to go first? So I'd like to say, you know, listening to Stephanie as well, it, it's it's really to change someone's life like that is it's really incredible. It's it's amazing. And I I hope, you know, Stephanie's gonna continue to do great work and I, I hope that other practitioners will adopt this and be able to offer it to their patients. Um, again, I, I think that the legality and the stigma around it needs to needs to change and people need to be aware that it's available and um, ask for it so insurance companies will reimburse it and, and reimburse for this service so so doctors and, and therapists can get paid what they deserve to actually um, provide this service and I think you know as long as everything is conducted in a safe manner and a secure manner I, I think the legality of uh, crossing state lines and providing this care has to relax a little bit as well too um, Stephanie alluded to this before but it, it I don't know if people are aware to get it to get a medical license in each state is a lot of paperwork and time and anywhere from three to nine hundred dollars per state so this is the kind of thing that you know you have to be willing to um, try to be a little bit of an entrepreneur which mm -hmm. I can't speak for therapists and for Stephanie but doctors tend to uh, not be as entrepreneurial and, and bold in terms of doing these things we tend to really be set in, in rules and, and scared about things and um, scared about trying trying new ventures. You know, even I had to get extra malpractice for this type of thing, which is fine, but it, you, we worry about these types of things because it can affect how we can practice and I care. Um, so it has to change really, I think, both from the doctor's perspective, the therapist's perspective, and also the, the the market you know people have to know about it and really and really push for it yeah stephanie would you have anything to add or is there any additional steps which you think um which which would help the prevalence of uh virtual healthcare that risa hasn't touched upon she really hit the nail on the head with each of those sectors and i would just drive home that professionals have a duty i i believe to continue to bring awareness to the virtual health platforms. Um, 
people deserve care and intervention. And if that opens up the opportunity and lessens the stigma for them to do that, it becomes my job as a professional to kind of tailor my approach to be able to do that and not to hang on to the idea that proper and best care is necessarily face-to-face under the same roof. Um, I know that there is a lot of comfort to that and there can be some ideas of added benefit to that, but in from where I sit, if more people are willing to get mental health care by doing it virtually, again, I think it becomes our duty as professionals to bring that awareness to that option for the general population. Excellent. No, I totally agree. And, and thank you for taking the time to speak with me today, both of you, because I'm way more knowledgeable just within 30 minutes of speaking with both of you. I know far more than I did uh, <laughs> half an hour ago. And uh, this is clearly something that is helping a lot of people. And I really hope it continues to help a lot of people. And hopefully um, advancements can be made with technology, but also apparently with the law. And hopefully more people can get the help they need with people like you two. I hope so. Excellent. Um, so those are, all, those are all my questions for now. Uh, I just want to say again, thank you so much for joining me. And unless there's anything else, that is all. It's been wonderful. Yes, thank you so much again for the opportunity and really for having the awareness of this as an evolution in health care and making sure this conversation is happening. Oh, it's my pleasure. Yes, thank you. Thank you very much, Sam. It's a great opportunity and, and getting the awareness out there is, is amazing. Weird Wide Web. On the last episode, we did a Weird Wide Web piece on Carl Gierstorf, who was recently crowned Fortnite World Champion. According to Ars Technica, Kyle was streaming a Fortnite game when he abruptly left his desk and abandoned the game with the live stream still running. And if you're wondering what made him ditch his beloved game so quickly, it's because his dad came to tell him that armed police were at the door. Kyle returned unharmed to the stream a few minutes later, stating, I got swatted. Now for those of you who are unaware of what swatting is, swatting occurs when someone places a hoax emergency call to a police department hoping to mobilize an emergency response, say for example a SWAT team, to a victim's house. However, Unlike Carl, some victims of this deadly joke have not been so lucky. For example, earlier this year, Reuters reported on a story about a California man who was sentenced to 20 years in federal prison for a swatting incident, where Kansas police responded to a false report and fatally shot an unarmed man. Perhaps with his $3 million, Carl might want to invest in a solid deadbolt for his door, or buy a super secret gaming lair. That's our show. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can find this episode and many more along with fantastic articles at sociable.co.